Welcome to the show. I want to do something a little bit different with a series of conversations with some of the brightest, smartest liberty people I know who have widely divergent views on the debate over Israel and Palestine and what happened in the, in the Gaza Strip. And I want to challenge all of you to do something that most Americans can't do anymore, which is listen and engage and debate with, with views that are at polar ends of each other on this subject. And that's something that we could probably do here. So you're going to be hearing from various people with smart opinions, um, some of whom you'll love, some of whom you'll hate, some of whom hopefully change your mind and make you think a little bit more about this very difficult, maybe impossible issue that's happening in Israel. Sheldon. Long time no see. It has been a long time. I used to see you around George Mason University. Yeah. And in Washington. So I was a, I was I was trying to figure out when when we first met because you've been a fixture in in libertarian circles and uh, sort of making both as a writer and as a libertarian intellectual making um, principled arguments on these things. And it must have been when I was in graduate school at Mason. When were you at uh, the Institute for Humane Studies? Was that when I met you? I think that's right. From 1985 into 1990, the beginning of 1990. That's what it would have been. And you went from there to Cato? Cato, from there. And from Cato to? Uh, from Cato to... <laughs> uh, I went to oh, the Institute for Humane Studies. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, sorry, sorry. No, I'm uh, Foundation for Economic Education. And I think I, I was I, I was between jobs for a bit, and then I got offered when Don Boudreaux became president of FEE in the '96 uh, or so. He offered me the editorship of the Freeman, and I spent the next 15 years editing the Freeman. Well, I. I'll tell you what, what, what the project that I'm working on, and you're, you're potentially the last interview in this series, although I've been talking to Dave Smith about, uh, and he wants to do it, and it's just going to be a question of scheduling. But what I've tried to do is curate some of the smartest people I know in the libertarian liberty world with, mm. with all sorts of different perspectives on the question of Israel and Palestine. And this, this was all um, started after October 7th, where we're having this, this renewed debate, but this is, this is an eternal debate. We've been having this conversation for as long as I've been alive. Um, but I wanted, I wanted to do something different because the thing that was frustrating to me at the time is if you said anything on the subject, you were immediately shoehorned into Team Israel or Team Hamas, and that there was no, there was no nuance, there was no um, ability to, to criticize um, sides that you might even be sympathetic with. So I wanted mm -hmm. to challenge my audience to see if they'd be willing to listen to a variety of perspectives, um, um, which, which quite often conflict with each other. And mm -hmm. so far, I've, o I've only had um, a few angry unsubscribes, um, but I'm hoping that my audience would love to hear all of the sides and then maybe make an intelligent decision for themselves about about what they understand to be the, the source of the problem. Are there solutions? I, 
I, I keep quoting um, Thomas Sowell, um, who I, who I don't agree with on everything, but this seems to make sense when it comes to Israel and, and Palestine, that there are no solutions or only trade-offs. I, I agree. I agree. I use that soul uh, axiom often, not just for this issue, but for many issues. He, he makes a lot of sense on a lot of things. I agree. I don't agree with him on everything, just like you don't, uh, but he's certainly very wise on a great many things. Yes, yes. And, uh, and I think, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I personally don't see some sort of magical libertarian solution to this conflict um, no. because both sides are fighting over the same land and, and, and how we would fix that. I don't know, but I see you have your, your book behind you coming to Palestine. And that's, that's, that's how I rediscovered your work on this subject is I saw you and one of your colleagues at the Libertarian Institute talking about that book and kind of going chapter through chapter and it was it was a very enlightening way to to understand history that I I certainly am not that fluent in. Um, what was the you, was this something you decided to write, or is this a collection of things you've been working on your entire career? This is a collection I've I've been working on for over thirty years. In when I was still in the D.C. area, actually, when I was working for Cato, I began to do some writing for the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs. Uh, my views had changed. I grew up in Philadelphia in a, a Jewish family. I was a conservative Jewish. I don't mean conservative in the, in the uh, political sense, but that sort of kind of middle range between the Orthodox and the very Reform, um, and grew up learning that Israel was the good thing, that it was, that it was right, that the, the, the creation of it or the recreation, however you want to look at it, in 1948, was uh, proper, um, might have even had a, you know, the divine hand involved. Uh, I gave up religion in the, uh, in the late, uh, well, I was about 18 or 19, getting, getting on to uh, uh, about 1970 or so. Well, that's a little bit earlier than that. But I didn't give up what you could call a Zionism, kind of a moderate Zionism. I never had any desire to move there. My parents had no interest in moving there. They visited. Uh, I visited a couple times in the 70s, not not, check, not scoping it out to see if I want to live there. I never had any thoughts of, of moving out of the United States. I, I was a libertarian already in the, you know, in the early, in late 60s, early 70s. As soon as I learned the word, I realized I was already a libertarian. I just didn't hear the word right away. But, the, but the, so while I had given up all religion, I, I hadn't given up this idea and I tried to shoehorn it into libertarianism. And you could find people that will today argue this, Walter Block is an example, that you can justify modern Israel on libertarian grounds. And I still thought you could do that. But then I started meeting people, libertarians, who were more uh, involved, had more engaged with the literature and added the radical critique, libertarian critique to it regarding land and how, how one owns land and colonialism, imperialism and all that. And I started reading in, in the 70s. And by, uh, you know, the late 70s, 1980 or so, I had decided uh, there wasn't a case for how this, this state has, you know, was set up. And you couldn't make a libertarian justification uh, for it. 
So I started writing uh, for the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs, which still exists as a, I think it's a bi-monthly magazine, and other and some other journals, you know, on more narrow topics within the in the the grand, you know, category of uh, Israel and Palestine, and um, and then a couple of years ago, Scott Horton and I at the Libertarian Institute said, uh, why don't we just why don't you put all that stuff together? So I pulled stuff out and I got. You know, permission to reprint stuff, and I had also written some fresher stuff at the Libertarian Institute, uh, and I'd written some stuff for Cato on this when I was still there, and we put it together, and um, I'm gratified that people have regarded it as, so it's not a systematic history, it doesn't read as a systematic history, it's the kind of thing you could pick up, look down the table of contents and say, oh, that topic interests me, the 67 war, or this, or that, and so you don't need to read from page one to the end. And we and I've been gratified, like I say, that uh, people have told me they thought it was a very good introduction. Oh, look, it's a daunting topic. I mean, there's many, many books. I mean, come on, paper, you know, paper, scholarly papers, books, articles. You could devote your whole life to it. And a couple of times in my career, I thought, you know, maybe I should make this my specialty, because up until then, I was a generalist. I wanted to promote liberty. And I applied that to all kinds of things, minimum wage, uh, you know, should the government own the highways, all this stuff. Uh, but every once in a while, I'd be so caught up in a particular issue regarding Palestine and Israel, I'd say, maybe I should turn full time to this. But I always rejected it. I, I liked being a generalist defender of freedom. And so that's why, you know, I could edit the, uh, I could edit the Freeman and do this kinds of work on all kinds of issues. So it was always a fresh thing. But I still kept my hand in it. And so that's where the book came from. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today, just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. And I, I, I vividly remember your work on, on getting the state out of education, which it is a newly interesting subject to certainly libertarians, but a lot of moms who have discovered, perhaps for the first time in their life, that the, the school system is all about protecting teachers and the monopoly and has nothing to do with protecting kids. That was my first book, published by the Future Freedom Foundation. Separating School and State, How to Liberate America's Families, it was called. I, I was, uh, my kids were homeschooled, so I was, uh, had a hand in that, and I was interested in homeschooling. And uh, Jacob Hornberger, who runs the Future Freedom Foundation, founded it and still runs it, said, uh, you should do a book on that. I wasn't working for him directly. I did a little later on, spent a year actually on their payroll. But he, uh, I said, okay, that sounds like a good idea. So you're, uh, you're, your book was published, I believe, in 2019. Coming to Palestine was published by the Libertarian Institute in 2019. Um, right. But a recent shout-out on Joe Rogan by Dave Smith probably gave it a nice uh, resurrection. Well, that's right. I mean, I, I did see a, a little surge in uh, in the numbers, so the, uh, very gratified. Of course, all this is going on now. People are interested. And uh, if especially, you know, look, a lot of the... Uh, critique of what Israel has been doing, uh, you know, comes from the left, people who are not friendly to markets and private property and individualism. 
Now, it's funny, when they talk about the Palestine issue, suddenly they're, they're property rights advocates. So I'm glad to hear that, but they ought to apply it generally. But this was a libertarian uh, look at the whole thing. So I think that gives it some appeal. I don't know, maybe it's not a very crowded market, you know, libertarian books that look at the Palestine-Israel conflict. Yeah. Strictly from libertarian, uh, uh, through libertarian glasses. Maybe, maybe, I, maybe I have a monopoly. Don't tell the antitrust division. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, I assume there's a huge market for, for a libertarian perspective on this, or at least there should be. There should be a huge market. So, so like, uh, so I had uh, Thomas Massey on the show. He started this series for me. And, and as, as you may recall, one of the things that, that he did, and perhaps the sole vote, I don't remember, it's been a while since I talked to him about this, but he, he voted against a pro-Israel resolution that in his reading was a blank check authorization of, of whatever was necessary to defend Israel, including it, it did not uh, exclude in that, in that promise uh, troops. And Thomas Massey voted against this on, on very principled uh, liberty-based grounds. Um, you could also argue on America First grounds um, and the some some spin-off of APAC um, immediately denounced him as an mm-hmm. an, anti-Semite. Um, and of course, and uh, and you, you you have strong opinions about this the the blurring of 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 critiques of Zionism and 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 accusations of anti-Semitism. They're, they're not the same thing. No, not, not at all. And, and uh, one thing about Massey, I mean, I heard Massey on an interview say he's not even anti-Zionist. So while he didn't like the equation of anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, he doesn't even claim to be an anti-Zionist. Like you said, he was concerned about this open-ended commitment of the United States government and the American people in their name, of course, their money uh, to this uh, war. So uh, it's very strange that go after him. But on the issue itself, it's just ridiculous because anti-Zionism, Jew, let me put it this way, Jewish anti-Zionism, that's not a term you hear very much uh, these days, Jewish anti-Zionism is about as old as Jewish Zionism. Now, there was Christian Zionism even before Jewish Zionism, as I understand it, in about the mid-19th century, Christians were coming up with the idea that maybe the Jews ought to, because they have, some of them have this, you know, end times uh, view that Jews have to reassemble in the, in the, the Holy Land before uh, Jesus returns. Uh, so some people have that theory and want them to encourage Jews to go there. But, but Herschel is later in the 19th century, about 1896. You know, and the moment he starts talking about it or writes his book, The Jewish State, there is immediately Jewish anti-Zionism. The, the Orthodox, for one th- the Orthodox Jews, for one thing, uh, look at the, looked at the very secular uh, uh, Herzl, who would have a Christmas tree in, on Christmas, and, you know, he didn't live a Jewish life. He was, he was a secular uh, Viennese uh, uh, writer. And they, and, and they said, the, basically what they said was, not these exact words, maybe, who died and made Herzl the uh, the Messiah, who's going to, or God, to lead us back. We're not supposed to go back until we're led back by 
God or the Messiah. That's what that was the that was the Orthodox response. The Reform, on the other hand, kind of the other wing, and they were they were in Germany, but also there was a huge Reform movement, or relatively speaking, huge Reform movement in the United States. Were saying, you know, the the laws, the ancient laws, the ancient state that was two thousand years ago. That's not for today. And they would say, you know, no Jew, Jews around the world no longer constitute a single people. It's a religious community, but it's not one people. Biologically, it's not a people. It's not a. It's not even an ethnic group. Jews around the world have uh, different ethnicities, have different cultures. Aside from religion, maybe religious beliefs and practices, when it comes to their day-to-day cultures, let's call it their secular cultures. They're very different. They don't speak the same language. They don't eat the same foods. They don't listen to the same music. You know, a, a Yemeni Jew has very little in common, you know, with a, a, a Jew who was living in Britain. That's the kind of thing they say. They're, they're, not, uh, they're not the same. It's a worldwide community that has this religion in common. And so this idea that we all ought to go back and, you know, and be gathered back uh, to an ancient land, they thought was absurd. And the reform would say things like, you know, America is our Zion. They loved the, the, the freedom that was in America. This was even in the 19th century because, uh, you know, it's, it, there weren't, there's not a religious test. Now, there was prejudice, of course, which, you know, over time, be, be, you know, diminished and was overcome. But they, they were free in the United States. And... Why do they want to pick up and, and leave? And, and they wanted to be known as loyal Americans, too. They didn't like they were afraid of this idea of dual loyalty. If you set up a state in Palestine, that's supposed to be our state. Well, what about America? Isn't America my state? I live in America. Isn't that my country? We don't want people saying, you know, who are you really loyal to? They were very worried about that. I, and I think they were prophetic. I think that what they and they also knew that there were Arabs in, in Palestine. You know, when the. Herzl's people used to say a, a, a land without a people for a people without a land. And some rabbis went there and they cabled back. Guess what? The bride is beautiful, like you say, but she's already married. So they were told immediately that there were people there. It was not a land uh, without a people. And so they, this is the kind of thing they were talking about. There was anti-Zionism from Jewish sources you know, moments after there was Zionism from Jewish sources, and maybe even earlier. So this idea that anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism can can be equated is ridiculous. First of all, a lot of anti-Semites today, and there are, look, there is anti-Semitism. I don't think it's like raging, but some anti-Semites are pro-Zion. They'd love the Jews from everywhere, in Britain, here, Canada, to get out. We'll pack your bags. We'll help you go. We want you to go. You could be an, why can't you be an anti-Semite and a Zionist? It seems like you could easily be. Uh, so it, it's just a ridiculous thing. And, and you saw how it played out in Congress with that absurd hearing with uh, Stefanik. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, she, I am no fan of the three, two of them are former now, presidents of those Ivy League schools. Okay, I probably nothing in common with them on any count. Because they're all into that woke, you know, woke stuff, and it's just ridiculous. Uh, but she was all equally ridiculous. They're both—they were both hypocrites on opposite sides, but they're just 
flip hypocrites. But for her to be lecturing people like she's what, their mother or something? She's a member of Congress. I thought they're our servants, theoretically. She's up there saying, no, that's not the right answer. The right answer is, well, who, if she wants to ask herself questions, go ahead, ask yourself questions. What are you calling in witnesses for? If you're going to tell them what the right answer is. It was ridiculous. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. It was uh, uh, conservatives and Republicans who have been uh, howling about uh, censorship of speech on campus. This is another subject I discussed with Thomas Massey. Um, they, they've been complaining for years, and I think with, with great justification, that uh, anything other than sort of woke progressivism is, is suppressed on college campuses, and they've created these safe spaces and words or violence and all of this bullshit that, that these, these, these uh, uh, university presidents who are now being so demonized, you know, they created that system. They helped create that system. They enshrined it. So in one sense, they got hoisted on their own petard. But on the other hand, the Republicans and the conservatives that were complaining about the speech police suddenly said, hold my beer. We're not going to let this type of speech happen on campus because, because that's right. a bridge too far. And they were even, I mean, she, I'm thinking of Stefanik in particular, because she did so much of the talking, but she's not the only one who takes this position. Um, they were so sleazy because here's, you know, the, the question they kept asking those uh, presidents, you know, was if students are calling for the genocide of, of uh, Jewish people, uh, does that violate, you know, is that harassment or does it violate your rules? Uh and only one, I think only the, the now former Penn president said, well, I didn't, I haven't heard anybody say that. That, that was number one, the right answer. And she, either has Stefanik heard anyone say that. Here's what she's doing. And she, and she wouldn't openly admit it. Well, she did kind of admit it, maybe. She's immediately thinking that the slogan from the uh, river to the sea, right? From the uh, Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, uh, they, she thinks that equates not only to anti-Semitism, but to a call for genocide, which is ridiculous. First of all, Likud, which is Netanyahu's party, has in their own platform a call for uh, uh, you know, Jewish sovereignty from the river to the sea. So does that include, does that mean genocide of the Palestinians? Why one and not the other? So in other words, she's already she's made, already making a leap when she says if if students are call are calling she didn't make she didn't even say it as hypothetical if students call for genocide Jewish genocide you know does that violate your rules look at all the leaps she made and and some of the presidents a couple of the presidents I mean maybe all three tried to answer that but you know Stefanik you know would say uh, I don't want to hear about context I don't want to hear about this I don't want to hear about that. Uh, if they use the word intifada or if they say river to the sea, that, that automatically means genocide. And, and that's like a, that's a bridge too far. She, she can't prove that. It doesn't mean that. I mean, you got, look, you have, 
you have Jewish Voice for Peace in those rallies calling from the river to the sea. And, and, and not in my name and, and cease fire and ale. Are they, are they in favor of Jewish genocide? I mean, it, it just shows you how ridiculous it is. But you're right. The, the, uh, the, the uh, presidents of those universities really kind of set themselves up years before. The foundation for individual rights and, and expression, FIRE, ranks Harvard as the worst school, worst campus for free speech. So it does seem funny all of a sudden, for her, former Claudine Gay, former President Claudine Gay, to say, uh, you know, I support free speech. It, it, she, she, she made her own bed. So she's lying in it. And of course, she got caught on plagiarism, too. So I, I don't have any sympathy for her or the others, because I, just, I don't think they're, they're very, there's not sound on this at all. They happen to be right on this one thing. But if you're right, if you're wrong on all the other stuff, it looks as it's going to lead to suspicion that why are you right only on this thing? So they set themselves up for that. But Stefanik is also was also disgraceful, and the people that support you know supported her line are just as disgraceful. And so, and and honestly, regardless of where you are on that specific issue, it's important to point out that we've furthered the precedent that political demagoguery and Congress and the people that pull the purse strings in Washington D.C will be able to determine what type of speech is acceptable on college campus. And this, this is another issue that Thomas Massey got in trouble for because he voted against another um, show resolution that wanted to defund universities that allowed certain types of pro-Palestinian speech. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a can of worms that, that you don't come back from. And, and, to, to think that in, in any of that, um, a pro-liberty, limited government perspective would somehow be defended doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, because the easy answer to that, not that it's easy to do, but the easy answer is there shouldn't be any funding to colleges or schools, <laughs> government funding. Yeah. It should be a totally private affair. Why does Harvard need to have taxpayers' money? That would have, how many billions of dollars do they have in cash you know, in an endowment or something? It, it, that's ridiculous. And of course, that leads to a lot of these problems because taxpayer, it gives Congress something to complain about. Hey, taxpayers' money is going to them and they're doing this and we don't like that. So they can, you know, as a pretense, they can say we're defending the taxpayer, even though they're just maybe pushing their own agenda. But yeah, we could solve that problem very easily. Stop the funding. I, I want to go back to the earlier conversation and the sort of history of uh, Jewish anti-Zionism, because you just wrote a piece at, at Libertarian Institute about, uh, I'll, I'll butcher his name and you can correct me, Ahad Haham. Haham, um, right. Yeah, that was a pen name. It means one of the people. His real name is Asher uh, Ginsburg. And yeah, I didn't actually so much, I didn't really write that piece. It was a, a, a kind of a reprint of an excerpt from a, a journal article from I think the 50s, that had a lot of quotes from him by, by a man named Hans Cohn, who was very sympathetic to him. You're right, Ahad Ha'am was a, uh, he, he was born in the 19th century, he lived up till I think the 1920s. He was a contemporary critic of Herzl. He, he was a, uh, you know, from, from Poland or, you know, that area at some time or other, was, you know, was part of the Russian empire. Those, those areas changed hands a lot back then. Um, 
And he, he, he represented what he called spiritual Zionism. He did want a sort of a spiritual reawakening of Jews around the world, a revival of Hebrew and all this stuff. And, and he was not against uh, a Jewish presence in Palestine. But what bothered him about political Zionism was the attitude toward the Arabs. And that's what those quotes in that piece, and people can find that at the Libertarian Institute if they look it up. Um, just scroll down my my several, last few articles, you'll find it. Uh, has a picture of them. Um, he, he criticized this attitude of superiority toward the Arabs, to the, the Palestinians. They're primitive. What do they know? Number, first of all, we know, we know that there were Arabs there. There's no doubt about it because they're arguing what ought to be the right attitude toward them. If they weren't there, who, you know, there'd be no attitude. So he said, now, how dare you treat them and talk about them as if they don't know anything and we can just go in there and take it over. Who cares? Why do they matter? I mean, they're very hard-hitting quotations. And he continued this you know, until, the, you know, until he died. Um, obviously, he didn't prevail. Yeah, the, the quote... The quote from that that short passage um, basically has him predicting precisely the sort of conflict that has been never ending ever since. And it starts with the fact that there were Arabs living on the land that the Zionists hoped to repopulate with with Jewish people. Um, But that uh, one one thing struck me, and it it reminded me of of the apartheid government in South Africa. Um, He mentions some law that prohibited um, Arabs from, from uh, getting employment in, in Jewish communities. And that's precisely what the apartheid government did to, to black Africans um, in, in various ways. Minimum wage was one of them, but also just regulations yeah. and, and outright prohibitions. So it, it, be, it starts long, long before the official creation of Israel um, they create this this hostile environment where it's us versus them, and them are are not worthy of employing. And it it seems like uh, and 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 the author predicts this. He he says this this is going to be a disaster, and, exactly. and it has been. Right, because you know the Jewish organizations started to buy land in the early twentieth in the very early twentieth century. Maybe even started before the century began, late nineteenth century. And a lot of land owners of record were feudal absentee landlords from the old Turkish Ottoman Empire who didn't even live in Palestine. They lived in Beirut or somewhere else. But the, the peasants, the farmers, had worked it. So in a, in a sense, in the John Locke the, uh, spirit, they were the real owners, right? Not the, not the owners who the, uh, you know, uh, the officials of, uh, of uh, Turkey you know, gave land to as a favor. Uh, the real owners were the people working the land, and they were there for generations. Their family had worked. So that land, a lot of that land was bought by the Jewish National Fund and others, some, some uh, you know, wealthy individuals. And when, of course, they found uh, Palestinian Arabs, you know, Muslims for the most part, working the land, and they had worked and lived it for, like I say, a long time, maybe a thousand years their family had been there. But the idea was this was this was being this land was being redeemed by the Jewish people. You can't have non-Jewish. Didn't matter that they were Arabs. The point is they were non-Jewish. You can't have non-Jewish people working on land that we redeemed, the Holy Land. And so they fired those people. They were 
not really fired. They weren't employees. They didn't fire them. They kicked them off. They ejected them. And they wouldn't even rehire them back just as, or hire them back as regular employees as opposed to, you know, maybe they were tenant farmers where they were, were in a sense, the real owners. And maybe they sent some crops to the, to the, uh, the absentee landlord as, as sort of payment for this whole arrangement. Uh, well, that made, that made the Arabs rather angry. They'd been there a long time. They worked it. They didn't understand why people were coming in from Europe. These were Europeans. Uh, and uh, and throwing them off the land and not even letting them work there. And some of them, you know, a lot of them became very resentful. Some, unfortunately, engaged in some uh, indiscriminate uh, violence in the 20s. There were Arab riots that took the lives of Jews, and, and they weren't always careful about who's even, I'm not defending, you know, killing civilians, but Jews had lived, a small number of Jews had lived there a long time, and they got along okay with, uh, you know, for the most part, in like the Jerusalem area and other parts, with the Arabs just fine. Uh, unfortunately, some of the people who had been there, you know, a long time got caught up in this violence, and, and many were killed. Arabs were killed too. So, you know, it was a terrible thing, but the instigating event was the fact that not only was there a Zionist program, which people were learning about, I mean, you can't keep this stuff quiet. People talk about it. And the Arab intelligentsia understood it. And it filters down to regular people. And they realize Europeans are coming in and buying land and kicking people off land they worked and lived on for a very long time. What the heck's going on here? And, you know, the, the Zionists used to talk about transfer. Herzl has a famous line in his diary, which is, you know, a long time has been published, about how we'll, we'll transfer the penniless, you know, peasants across the border. So there, there was already talk about kicking out or what we today call ethnic cleansing uh, from a fairly early date. And, you know, the Arabs understood what was happening there. They weren't the stupid, ignorant people that's, that the political Zionists uh, uh, treated them as if they were, Ahad Ham was right. They could see what was going on. And that set in motion a, po a very poisonous process, which we are still living with today, and especially they are still living with today. You know, Elon uh, Pape, who is, I think, a, a good historian of our time uh, about that conflict, he's written many books, including Ten Myths of Israel and, and uh, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. He has a very good quotation from a video I saw recently, a documentary, where he says, you know, Zionism has a problem. Europe was not a very hospitable place for Jews. You know, for, for a long time, certainly in the 19th century, even in the, in the, in the 20th century, even before we get to the 30s and 40s, even aside from the, from, uh, the Nazis, there were pogroms and all kinds of stuff. It wasn't uniform throughout. There were better places and better times depending on where you were in Europe, but it, on the whole, not a great place. There was, so there's a, you know, there was a, a terrible thing. So understandably, there was a search for a safe haven. Haven. So Pape says, though, the problem is, and his, here's the problem of Zionism, you can't create a safe haven by committing a catastrophe for other people. And there, there is the problem. I mean, I don't have a, I'm not saying I have a solution, and that doesn't tell you what to do today. But there's a big problem. Why have the Palestinians been made to, pay, to pay the price for what Europeans did? And now, you know, 
the Germans in particular, but not just the Germans, others in Eastern Europe, for what they did. It seems like the Palestinians, the Europeans said, look, we, we're guilty, we feel very guilty, we'll feel less guilty if we put, you know, make the Palestinians pay the price. Where's the logic in that? And if there's some Palestinian resentment against that, who can blame them for that? That doesn't justify killing civilians, that goes without saying. But that did, as, as the uh, Secretary General of the UN said after the, uh, t the, the October 7th events, and I rarely agree with him, that did not happen in a vacuum. Doesn't justify it, as he said, but it, you can't act like history began on October 7th. History did not begin on October 7th. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibi on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. So I, I sort of half-jokingly um, propose a three-state solution because it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fantasy about what the United States might have done had it been open to uh, Jewish refugees and immigrants. And it was uh, Larry Reed from uh, Writing in Fee turned me on to, this, to the fact that FDR in particular, but, but most of the heads of states of Europe wanted nothing to do with with Jewish immigrants and they you know they papered it over with this big conference but but uh, the United States refused to take these refugees and that that would have been in an alternative world a a more peaceful solution than than what was created um, by the, the creation of Israel and it strikes me that that one that's a that was a political solution to cover up that hypocrisy, and two, a central planning solution that was bound to fail because they didn't take into consideration um, the fact that that all of these other things had existed for hundreds of years. Is that that's sort of my somewhat uneducated opinion on that? Is it? Is there any truth to that? Well, you said you know you said quite a few things there. I think there is. Uh, I was going to add a couple of other things in 1924. Uh, Coolidge signed an Immigration Restriction Act to make America, you know, more American or assure the, that America would remain American. It was a ridiculous thing. It really made very low quotas on immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe. And it put it back to like 1890 quotas or a fraction of 1890 quotas. It was unbelievable. Now, there was still possibility, I guess, to refugee, and you're right about, uh, about Roosevelt. What I want to add to this is the Zionist organization's record during the 30s and 40s was not very good. It was shameful because they were not interested in any program that had any place other than Palestine for the Jews of Europe to go because that would cut into the cause. Ben-Gurion, of course, becomes the first prime minister. He's the one that declares independence. It's a myth that the UN created Israel. Israel created Israel. Ben-Gurion created Israel. 
by self-declaration. But uh, Ben-Gurion says, if it's a choice between, how did he put it, all of the European Jewish children coming to London or England, he says this in the 40s, I think, or half of them going to Palestine, he would without hesitation choose the second option. And another big wig in the Zionist movement said a cow in Palestine is worth more than the, you know, getting the children, the Jewish children to you know, someplace else, England. That's disgraceful because they thought, and, and you, know, you can see their logic, how can we be raising money and, and, and agitating for a state in, 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 uh, in Palestine and make, creating a new state of Israel if Jews are settling in Canada, Argentina, America, uh, England, Australia, as many where many Jews have had gone over the years, uh, Argentina, you know, Brazil, uh, if they're settling happily there and they're relatively free and it's not any kind of crisis, what happens to our effort to uh, to get a state? You can see the logic. I mean, and it, kind of from their point of view, they're right. But think of the tragedy as a result of that. You know, before the war starts, before World War One, Two starts, there's a chance to get plenty of Jews out. Uh, you know, Hitler is letting them go. They may have to pay to get out. And I'm not saying anything kind about Hitler. Eichmann was told to read the Jewish state. He was told by the, his bosses to read Herzl's book. He visited Jerusalem. The British eventually kicked him out, but he went and he was dealing with Jewish leaders in order to uh, get people out, not quote rescue them. It was not out of the kind of his, of his heart. That's not my point. But they didn't they didn't want the Jews. The funny thing is, earlier in in the century and in the late nineteenth century, Herzl and his uh, and, and the people that then succeeded him, because Herzl dies in nineteen o four, they are telling the European, the non Jewish European leaders, look, help us get a state in Palestine, because. We agree with you. We Jews don't belong here. We are foreigners. We will always be foreigners. And they didn't like the Eastern Jews, the ones that had the broad hats and the, and the curly. They didn't like them. Herzl didn't look like that. These were secular Jews. These people, you know, had no religion at all. Ben-Gurion, they were secularists. And so they put down what they called the old Jew. They wanted to create the new Jew the farmer, the soldier in Palestine. And so they told, basically appealed to the anti-Semites of Europe saying, we agree with you, help us get to, to Palestine. We do not belong here. Well, how did that do any good? I don't see how that did any good as the 20th century wore on and as the Nazis are uh, you know, beginning to uh, calculate how they can gain power and hit, you know, with Hitler at the, at the head. That, that seems to me like a bad, bad mistake in retrospect. And people said it at the time, of course. Sort of a, a, a thick, I always quote Hayek on my show, it's a, it's a fatal conceit based on this sort of constructivist idea for people that care about the state and about centralizing power versus actually helping Jewish people. Right. It was, it was kind of a messianic movement, even by the non-religious. It was, it was funny because it was a secular messianic movement. It was like, okay, it's not God, it's history. And history is moving us toward recreating Israel, getting having all the Jews be there. And so 
you know, the, the latest biography of Ben-Gurion by a, uh, an eminent uh, Israeli journalist and historian, Tom Sekov, is called A State at Any Price. So that tells you something. A yeah. State at Any Price. So I'm going to ask the, the question that you already said you couldn't answer, but uh, fast forward to um, where we are today. Is is there any hope for for a peaceful way out of this thing? Yeah, you were talking about a three-state solution. I'm for the, a no-state solution. <laughs> Anarcho-capitalism, but I don't think that's going to sell. Uh, I'm evading your question. Yes. Uh, What's going on there is horrible. I, I, under the genocide con- uh, definition, the convention, it does qualify. I don't use that word lightly. I don't think I've ever used the word in print. Uh, South Africa has now filed with the International Court of Justice an 84-page brief that has look, looks like a lot of evidence, not only in terms of actions, what's being done there, starving people, depriving them of food, uh, uh, fuel, all the rest, but the and the bombing. I mean, you can see the videos on YouTube. It looks like Hiroshima in some parts of, of Gaza. And then they told them to go south, and then they bombed them in the south. Uh, it looks like a genocide. Uh, it's not just the actions, though. It's the statements, because under the Genocide Con- Convention, you have to also demonstrate uh, uh, intent. But countless... Israeli officials have said, we're going to do this. There are no innocents in Gaza, some of them said. We're going to deny them food. This is going to go on for months. Well, you can't deny people food for months and think they're going to be alive at the end of it. You need food after a while. And the water already before this, all this business started, the water was uh, not fit for human consumption. Half the population are kids. What do we have? Uh, 23,000 dead. I mean, that's conservative because there's still people under rubble. Half of them are kids. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen. This is going to go to the the court, the ICJ, and Israel is going to try to quash it. And the U.S. is open to prosecution, too. It is aiding and abetting a genocide. They give almost four billion a a year to uh, to Israel for in uh, in arms in money for arms. They, uh, Biden has twice, uh, uh, you know, uh, on his own sold weapons. And then there was 14 billion shortly after all this began, uh, like an emer- Congress passed a $14 billion for them, uh, for Israel. Uh, so even though once in a while Blinken or even Biden makes a statement that, oh, please try to avoid casualties, affect ca- uh, civilian casualties, or Biden once slipped. When Biden slips, it means he's told the truth, forgetting that he's not supposed to. When he said it was indiscriminate bombing by Israel, he said they ought to stop the indiscriminate bombing. Uh, but though, apart from a couple of words here and there, their actions show that apparently their true feelings. They are, as they like to put it, in lockstep with Israel in committing this. And I don't see what's going to bring an end to it. Uh, you can't destroy a people because... You know, you can't just say Hamas. There's my reason. There's my defense. I don't need to say anything else. There, I don't know what to say, and I don't know how it's going to end. It's going to go on. It's going to go on. It's open ended, and and the and then the further danger is widening the war. There's been attacks in you know Lebanon, and uh, who knows what's going to happen with the Houthis. But if there were a ceasefire, 
And when there was that temporary ceasefire, those those kinds of attacks from in Lebanon and, and the Houthis uh, either stopped or, you know, fell to almost close to zero. So when they say if there was a ceasefire, we'd stop this, this stuff that's going on in, also in Iraq and Syria. Uh, there is some track record in recent weeks and months uh, that they're telling the truth, that the, the, the Houthis would stop the, the, the firing on ships in the Red Sea and stuff like that if a ceasefire uh, came in. But, uh, you know, Netanyahu's not interested in a ceasefire. Our government won't say there should be a ceasefire. Uh, so, I, you know, you tell me, Matt, I don't know how this ends. I don't know how this ends. The U.S. possibly, you know, I hear it said that the U.S. could stop it just by saying no more spare parts, Israel, no more bullets, no more nothing. And it would it would end relatively soon. Maybe that's true. But can you see Biden and, a, and Congress doing doing that, uh, even though it's maybe jeopardizing, maybe it's hurting Biden's reelection chances because you have a lot of young people who do not like this this policy of support for Israel. Yep. And so yeah. I don't, I wish I could see a path. I don't see a path. It's very frustrating and depressing. The other, the other driver in this, which you've also written about extensively and you quote, quote uh, our friend Christopher Coyne on this about essentially the military industrial complex and the, and the business of war and yep. how, how lucrative it is that, that things are escalating and that, that, <laughs> in many ways is part of the, the, the political momentum that makes this so hopeless. Um, that the weapons manufacturers are making bank right now. And that's, uh, that's yeah. something that, that Republicans seem com- particularly blind to. And, and well, I shouldn't say just Republicans. Republicans and Democrats almost seem equally guilty of this blind spot of, of fully funding the war machine. It's it's a strong factor. It's, it's had plenty of time to build up, and certainly in this century, just since uh, yeah nine eleven really, but be, but even earlier than that. I mean, there have been books written about the military industrial complex uh, going back decades, many decades. So uh, that's just another piece of this puzzle, which is uh, a puzzle we could uh, we could do without because all things seem to push in the direction of. Uh, violence and uh, and uh, devastation and you know just try to get a handle on what's happening in Gaza every day and every night and the kids and the the sick people who are you know already uh, sick from you know whatever and now have to also duck bombs and two thousand pound bombs that have made in USA on it uh, you know Bin Laden this got some people upset when. People on TikTok were passing around the text of bin Laden's letter, declaration of war after 9-11. One of the things he said, and this is no defense of bin Laden, obviously, but one of the things he said in his bill of indictment against the United States was this this, uh, uh, killing of Palestinians and oppression of Palestinians. And he said the American, you know, it was a very sophisticated letter in a way. He said, look, you're always telling us that you're a democracy, that it's a government of the people, by the people, for the people. Okay, we attack the people. You told us. Uh, now, people don't really get a chance to make foreign policy. I mean, they don't have a whole lot of input, as you just alluded to, too. Uh, but it's one of the things that people you know, in the Middle East know, that the U.S. is a party. The U.S. government has been a party to this 
terrible fate of the Palestinians for a very long time. And it's just all now accelerated since uh, October 7th, and none of which, of course, is to justify the killing of civilians uh, by those Hamas uh, uh, fighters and, and others who might have gotten out of Hamas once the fences were blown in some places. But that's been a prison. It's been described by Israelis as a concentration camp, as an open-air prison, because nothing could get in and out without Israel's permission. This is before October 7th. It was, it was totally locked up. And, you know, if you treat people like animals, some people are going to act like animals. There's another thing. You know, the Israelis call the, the Hamas or the Gazans, they're sometimes very vague about who they mean exactly. They call them animals. But the thing I want to say to them is, well, treat people like animals. You know, I guarantee there are going to be some people who, who will act. And, of course, we treat animals better than that. That's not even fair to animals, is it? Or, or to how people treat animals. But there are going to be people who who will respond that way. There were people, you know, as, uh, as we're reminded of by lots of uh, lots of commentators, people involved in those attacks on the 7th, on the attacks on the Israelis on the 7th, and a lot of uh, targets were military. But uh, the people who involved, they were born into the Gaza prison, open-air prison. They were born into that. They never even had a chance to have a, a you know a kind of a normal life, and then and then and then lose it, which would be bad enough. They were born into that and had to hear stories from their parents and grandparents about being driven out of uh, villages in '48 and early, and, and then '67, different things like that. Uh, so and they seem to have no future. So you can understand the desperation, but to understand doesn't mean to excuse. I fully agree with that. I'm going to get, you know, some, anytime I tell this to somebody, I hit with, ah, oh, see, you just excuse them. And that, that, I think, is a cheap debating point. Anybody of common sense knows you can try to understand something, comprehend a motive. That doesn't mean you excuse. You know, police, when they're solving a murder, try to figure out the motive. That's not so they can then forgive the person and say, okay, go home. You killed the person, but we, we understand why. That's not what it means. Everybody knows that. But in this case, when it comes to something like this, it's like, oh, you're, I see what you want to do. You want to excuse it. Well, I don't think that, I hope that the tactic doesn't work anymore. Okay. Well, let's uh, leave it there. I really appreciate this conversation. Um, let, me, let me give you a chance to shamelessly promote your book, your work, and the work of the Libertarian Institute. Where can people find your book and where can we find out more about what your institute does? We can find this at, uh, at Amazon on Kindle and uh, paperback. It's not very thick it's very, and it's readable. The chapters are, you know, rel on the short side and you can tell by the title what it's going to cover. So you can, like I say, jump around. It's not, it doesn't try to be some kind of comprehensive history. So it's not, I hope it's not intimidating because that's not how I write. Uh, my work weekly is at the Libertarian Institute, which is libertarianinstitute.org, where you'll find lots of other books. I have some other books. Uh, but uh, Scott Horton has books on the uh, war on terror, you know, the war on Afghanistan, and many other books about COVID. Uh, Jim Bovard has a new book about uh, lost rights, or I think it's called Last Rights. This one he had an earlier book called Lost Rights. This one's called Last Rights, R-I-G-H-T-S. Uh, and so every day there is new stuff, some reposts, but some original stuff at the Libertarian Institute. So I invite people to take a look at that often, see if you like what we do. Um, 
And that's about it. I'm, that's where you'll find my, my, my work. And uh, I'll keep plugging away. I'll, I thank uh, you very much. It was a good conversation, Matt. I'll make sure to tag Joe Rogan because now that you've gotten shouted out, the next goal is to, is to get on Rogan, right? Well, I don't know if I want to do three hours. I know he does a very long <laughs> with people. I'm not, yeah, sure that's... Sit, I'm not sure I can sit that long. I don't know if I have three hours of words in one sitting. I have not heard from Joe Rogan, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Well, I've been watching Joe Rogan when he used to be a sitcom actor. <laughs> he used to be a sitcom actor, believe it or not. Things change. Check out, check out the show uh, News Radio from the 19, I don't know, 80s. Oh, that's right. He was good. He had hair, too. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you, Sheldon. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.